welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction. We were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. In August, a closely watched opioid trial concluded with a judgment against Johnson & Johnson, who were found guilty of deceptive marketing practices and causing a public nuisance. The announced judgment against Johnson & Johnson was $572 million to cover just the first year of abatement. But then, things got messy. Attorneys are back in the courtroom again today in Oklahoma's opioid lawsuit against drug maker Johnson & Johnson. So the fight now is over how much Johnson & Johnson will actually end up paying to fix the state's opioid crisis. News on 6's Taylor Newcomb is live in Norman with what happened in court today. Taylor. Craig and Lori, the judge admitted in court today that he did make a mathematical error in his original decision. He'd ordered Johnson & Johnson to pay $107 million from one part of the state's plan to fix the opioid crisis, but now the judge says that was a miscalculation. He says that could be fixed in his final decision, but that's not not all Oklahoma's attorneys are asking for. The state says it'll cost more than $572 million for just one year of the plan, which is how much Johnson & Johnson has been ordered to pay. Mental health experts and addiction specialists testified the plan would need at least 20 years to fix the crisis, and state's attorneys say it's the judge's duty and responsibility to make sure this crisis is fixed now that he's identified it exists. After the judge's surprise announcement on the miscalculation, I wanted to take a step back and take a look at the estimated costs of the opioid epidemic in general. So to do that, I spoke with the managing director of research of the Society of Actuaries, Dale Hall. And Dale broke down their latest report that's titled The Economic Impact of Non-Medical Opioid Use in the United States. It estimated the cost of the opioid epidemic at $631 billion dollars from 2015 through 2018. You know, there's a lot of places where economic costs pop up from opioid use disorder and different activities that stem from it. So nearly one third or 205 billion of the 631 billion that you mentioned came from excess healthcare spending. This is mainly for individuals with opioid use disorders or infants that happen to be born with similar disorders or even for family members of those who are diagnosed with those types of disorders. They just have a different um, healthcare spend than regular families. Mortality costs accounted for about 40% of uh, estimates. And that's predominantly driven by lost lifetime earnings for those who unfortunately died prematurely due to drug overdoses. There's a variety of other costs that are pretty tangible that you see. You know, our criminal justice system certainly incurs costs. There's police protection, there's legal adjudication activity, lost property due to crime, correctional facility expenditures. That was around $39 billion, about 6% of the total. Education costs are, are part of it. There's uh, costs associated with government-funded child and family assistant programs. Education programs was about $39 billion. 
And then there's a there's a measure of lost productivity that remain that gives the remaining 15% around 96 billion. These are these are costs that employers often bear, opportunity costs due to absenteeism. There's reduced labor force participation, uh, incarceration for crimes, and, and really maybe something new that we were looking at as well is the employer costs for disability and workers' comp claims due to employees having these types of disorders. I'd like to go back through these and, and dive a little bit deeper and come up with a few different examples, such as the health care costs. Can you give me a sense for how much more someone who's struggling with substance use disorder, how much on a magnitude, how much higher are their health care costs, according to your studies? One of the things that we do is called a matched case control study. So you try to match someone who has this, this disorder with um, another person of a similar gender and age and, and, and lots of other variables who, who may not, and then you want to compare what the relative costs are. And, and unfortunately, those with opioid use disorder have um, higher healthcare bills and spending, whether it's through commercial plans that they participate in. In some cases, obviously, it's Medicare or Medicaid. And maybe in some cases, they are uninsured and incur higher costs. And so those sum up to be much higher than um, the normal cost of a, of a regular person having illnesses and adds up to that $205 billion over the four-year period for excess healthcare spending compared to individuals that they're matched with. So the mortality cost, how does that come into play? You know, I think we view that as kind of an opportunity cost to our economy. You know, the goal here is try to get our hands around what the economic costs to the U.S. are. And with premature deaths, of course, our economy loses out on potential workforce and productivity, all that generate additional economic benefits. So I think it's important to measure that type of premature death as a lost opportunity cost. Some of those economic costs that we're talking about here are very tangible. This one may be a little bit more intangible, but it's important to factor in that strain on the economy by losing workers, and we measure that through lost lifetime earnings in the report. Let's go back to criminal justice for just a minute, because it seems as though that is a very tangible cost, and we're hit very, very hard in the criminal justice system on the streets all the way through our courts. Yeah, the you know the criminal justice system costs uh, are are much more tangible. You know, you walk through information that is available and and see and proportionately try to estimate. Uh, here's extra police protection or legal adjudication activities that were needed due to the opioid use disorder. Um, a lot of information centers around things like when when you have people that have been arrested and they are incarcerated, what are the correctional facility expenditures that come up? Um, a lot of it also centers around um, just the, the, the lost productivity that sometimes would come in through focusing on criminal justice activities. All those things that our police forces and legal systems are involved with in dealing with this, this disorder add up and, and create that economic cost to, to the U.S. So a lot of these seem pretty much self-evident in terms of why you came up with the categories, but the educational costs, that kind of stands out to me as, as one that's not 
clearly intuitive as to why you chose that. Could you shed some light on that? Sure. No, there's, you know, there's a wide variety of educational costs that um, are arising from non-medical opioid use. Um, you know, approximately 90% of the education funding in the U.S. comes from state or local funding sources. 10% comes from federal sources. So it's, it's trying to measure, you know, what is the additional cost or focus that has been generated by the day-to-day operations of public education institutions, um, in this report, we've assumed that uh, state and local funding is independent of non-medical opioid use, but a portion of federal funding can be attributed to that. And you start to walk through what proportion of all education costs are apportioned to things like substance abuse, and then in turn, how much of that substance abuse educational spend is attributable to opioids. You kind of multiply through, look at the total expenditures, and then make an estimate of those proportions, and you get up to you know some pretty tangible education costs. And these are costs that may not have been spent had there not been opioid use disorder issues. Last week, the Council of Economic Advisors released their report on the full cost of the opioid crisis, and their estimate was about three times greater than yours. So why the range of differences? It looks like everyone is trying to get their arms around what the cost is, the real cost of the opioid epidemic, but you've got a big range. Why is that? There's probably three main things that come into play. In our report, we certainly have a literature review of some of the things that you're mentioning, including, while not the most recent Council of Economic Advisors, one that was just on a similar basis about two years ago, and, and one of the main things, of course, is just timing. You know, the, the growth of some of this issue has been large in a short amount of time. But some of it is just making sure that you're looking at a, a, a current evaluation. Our goal, part of our goal here was not only to total up what's happened over the past uh, four years, as noted, but what is really kind of the, the now in time cost of 2019. So not only do we summarize past years, but we make some estimations of where we think 2019 will end up. It'll probably be somewhere in the 180 to 190 billion range. I think also there's a little bit of what's included in each of these studies. Some of the previous studies may only focus on healthcare. We we tried to get a broad economic spectrum in our report. Um, I think our report is one of the first ones to really try to drill down on a couple new places as well. It's unfortunate, but uh, neonatal uh, issues and syndromes are kind of new to this arena, unfortunately, in the last few years. Um, unfortunately, children being born with this uh, addiction from being carried uh, with someone with a disorder. There's some reports that will look at just health. We, we tend to look here at, at the economic impact of child and family assistance and education costs, like we've mentioned. And I think there's there's a third part is just the method. So you mentioned the Council of Economic Advisors, which uses a value for mortality that is more called a value of a statistical life. It's it's more the marginal cost of preserving mortality. How much more would you need to pay to save the next life? And it's often used in some policy analysis. I think in our approach, we wanted to get a little bit more tangible and, and things that you could see and look at premature mortality in the form of these are the lost lifetime earnings that would have been generated um, and built into economic growth. And so it's maybe just the method or the approach that's a little bit different there. 
As you put together this study, what surprised you, Dale? You know, I think part of it was the growing impact on Medicare. Um, Just at the beginning of the study back in 2015, we estimated the Medicare cost to be $10 billion, which is not a small number for sure, but the trend over the last four or five years has been has been strong upward. Um, our estimate for Medicare in 2019 might be somewhere in the range of 25 to 26 billion dollars. So that's you know two and a half times the amounts that we just saw back in 2015. There's um, there's definitely that would imply that there's definitely a a little bit of aging in happening in this epidemic. Obviously, Medicare is where a lot of uh, disability costs, people who can't work, uh, can become part of that Medicare system. But also, you know, as the population ages and addictions uh, occur, you might, you might sense that Medicare is, is taking up an increased share of what the health care costs are. So that, that's something that definitely stands out and was surprising as we looked at the trends there. With the insight provided by Dale Hall, now we're going to pivot back to the Oklahoma trial and the abatement numbers that they came up with. Joining me now is Dr. Christopher Room, who is a professor of public policy and economics at the University of Virginia. As we begin, he shares his insights into how he and his team developed the abatement plan for Oklahoma breaking down the six categories of the plan. This was a team effort, uh, as I'll discuss as we go on. Um, so I played one part of this, but there were many people involved. So, so the six major categories are uh, opioid use disorder, prevention, treatment, and recovery services. So um, that includes, of course, uh, expanded treatment, which we all recognize is necessary, but also a a variety of other categories such as, for example, uh, medication disposal or various uh, education-based prevention efforts. So, so this one's really um, uh, prevention and treatment. The second major category was overdose prevention and response. And, and here we're talking about uh, more immediate prevention efforts. So, for example, naloxone, which will reverse the effects of an opioid overdose. But it also includes things like grief support services, that kind of thing. The third major category is uh, medical education. And in this case, we're talking about Medicaid, uh, sorry, we're talking about education efforts for medical professionals. So these are doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and so forth. And um, that includes a variety of factors such as continuing medical education, but also residency training, um, and, and then also uh, counter detailing. So the pharmaceutical companies have been uh, educating physicians and other medical professionals for a long time, encouraging use of some of these medications, and the counter-detailing is trying to reverse some of that. If you've been in a doctor's office, as we all have, you might see the, uh, the drug company representatives waiting there to meet with the doctors, to buy the doctors and their staff's lunch, to educate them but typically to educate them on uh, in ways that encourage use of, of the pharmaceuticals that they represent. And so this effort is one to, to attempt to reverse that to some degree. So, so in particular, to educate the doctors about the, the risks of, for example, overprescribing opioids. 
The next category uh, are child services. Uh, so these are particularly related to things like neonatal abstinence syndrome, so evaluation and assessment, screening, and then treatment efforts for those. Um, the fifth category is data surveillance and reporting, so, so getting the data systems where we need them to be to understand uh, what the problem is, but also how to prevent it. And then the final category are a variety of uh, enforcement and, or, and uh, regulatory factors. Next, Dr. Room walked me through how he and his team arrived at the recommendations for the abatement calculations. So this main category is broken down into, I, I don't know, probably more than 10 subcategories. So for example, uh, the main uh, addiction treatment services and supplemental services, but also I mentioned uh, public medication disposal, uh, some screening efforts, some some uh, K through 12 prevention efforts. So, so there, there's this was broken down into subcategories, and for each of these uh, categories, the team and this was largely led by experts in the state of Oklahoma would identify uh, the scope of the efforts that were needed, the uh, the personnel and other. Uh, and other line items, and then cost out each of those individual line items, typically um, for the first year. So, so typically that would be for you know 2019 or 2020, and then um, extend that forward. Uh, we calculated these over a 20, a 25, and a 30-year basis. In some cases, adjusting the um, the amount of effort needed in different years, but we costed out each item. And then, you know, then my job was sort of to take all that, you know, add it up, adjust for inflation, discount to net present value, you know, the kinds of things economists do a lot. So the first year abatement recommendation was for over $870 million. The judge's proposed award was approximately $465 million after correcting it for his calculation error. I asked Dr. Room for his insight on what was left out. You know, I have not looked in detail about how we went, how the judge went from the 870 million to the 400 and whatever million it was. I believe the calculation error was the ju- the judge did calculations, and I think the judge made a calculation error. Um, I don't think it's an error in our in in our information, although I'm not positive of that. We went ahead and mapped the judge's preliminary award to the recommended abatement to try to pin down just what had been left out. And as it turns out, there's quite a bit. I actually haven't looked to see. Obviously, there were some, uh, there were some items that, that the judge excluded. So we went back and we looked at the judge's order to determine those items that were left out of his proposed award. What we came up with was he left off 25 different subcategories. That included 15 million for specialty courts, 20 million for a university health syringe exchange, and 758,000 for the addiction medicine course for doctors. Of course, the other big exclusion was we calculated this over a, a 20 to 30 year period, and the judge only gave an award for the first year costs. Next, I talked through our observations on the abatement plan with Dr. Room. Well, I am honestly confused about what's going on here because, okay, this was the first year cost, 
Yes. And again, we're taking this directly from your table there. Yeah, no, I get, I get it. I get it. And so in my report, what we did was we took your table and then we made a new column to the right of that. And we put out in that column, we matched up all of the awards that the judge awarded for each of the subcategories under the main categories. And then we tallied all of those. And where we started with this process was, as you and I discussed, the judge noted that he had made an error and he it was a $107 million error in his calculations. So we wanted to go back and find out where that was. And we learned where it was, was in the NAS evaluation slash assessment. And what was proposed was you had proposed, I believe that's $155,587, if I'm not mistaken, for that category. And what he had awarded, what he intended, what he said initially that he was awarding was $107,683,000, but what he intended to award there was $107,683. So as we add up all of these, what the actual award is, it was $464 million, uh, $526,711, which I believe that that concurs with what has been in the press for the grand total for the award for first-year abatement. So the, the overall question that I was hoping to get down to here that we've now that we've walked through all of this is I wanted to comment, if you could, and maybe you have to speculate on this, for the areas where the judge departed from the recommended, such as in addiction treatment, for example, the recommendation was over $85 million, and what he awarded was $31,796,000. Before we do that, let me, I figured out one of the issues, at least. So, you know, on the overdose prevention and response, which um, is listed as $23 million first year costs. And then, you, as you noted, when you add them up, it comes up to significantly more than that. $53 million, yes. Right, so if you look at the footnote, um, all costs, all first year costs are uh, projected for 2019 except the syringe service program. And the reason there is the idea was there'd have to be a change in Oklahoma law so that that one would actually kick in in 2020. So what happened here is that um, that that figure was put in, the syringe service program, but it won't, it won't take account until 2020. And so in the total first year cost, that was just done 2019 cost. So if you take out the 30,829,551, you should get the the total, the 23 million plus total. Everything else starts in 2019, but but since there would be, need to be a change in um, Oklahoma law, the the decision was made to uh, to hold off on that until 2020. So hopefully the other categories add up. All the numbers didn't add up. The reports with our analysis are posted with this podcast on our website. So the overall question is: there is many different of these subcategories where the judge awarded less than what was proposed. Any speculation on or insight in terms of why that might be? No. The quick answer is no. I, I, you know, I obviously was not involved in any of that and I'm not a lawyer. Um, you know, if we, if we just take one example, um, 
the overdose prevention and response, it looks like the judge awarded just the naloxone distribution and education piece and actually discounted that slightly. I'd have to check it. Maybe they, you know, we, uh, we moved things up to $2,020. Maybe the judge did 2019, but, but you'll notice did apparently did not, um, did not include any of the other items. So I don't know why the decision was made to do that. Or if you look at the medical education piece, it looks like the judge did the case management piece of it, but nothing else. Um, so, you know, the judge was making decisions clearly to, you know, pick and choose. And I don't know, you know, honestly, I have no idea why. I, or, you know, I, I don't know if any rationale was given. Um, it may be, you know, that some of the lawyers involved could tell you more, but I really don't know. I reached out to Judge Buckman's office to ask them for comment on what was and what was not funded, and they made it perfectly clear that their ruling was only preliminary. We've been joined today by Managing Director of Research from the Society of Actuaries, Dale Hall, who broke down their report from the Society of Actuaries titled The Economic Impact of Non-Medical Opioid Use in the United States. We were also joined by Dr. Christopher Room, who is a professor of the public policy and economics at the University of Virginia, and he shared his insights on how he and his team developed a comprehensive abatement plan for Oklahoma, breaking down the six categories for their plan. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. For the latest on community events and our podcast series, Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Cover 2 Resources. That's Cover and the number 2 in Resources. As always, thank you for listening to this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.